Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today on the show, I'm joined with an autism and neurodivergent speaker who's done many things, such as a TEDx talk. He's been in magazines and TV shows and been asked back in several autism conferences. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I am joined with Michael Barton. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me, Reid. Not a problem. So you're a speaker. You've spoken all over, and you've given talks, met people all over the world. When were you diagnosed with autism? So my my diagnostic journey, well, started as a child because I was nonverbal until I was three years old. I got a diagnosis aged two of PDD-NOS. It stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified. (laughs) Now, despite the long name, it's actually quite a broad diagnosis that basically meant I wasn't developing in a typical fashion. And if we go back then, which is nearly 30 years ago now, getting a bit old, (laughs) this is a common precursor to an autism diagnosis. And I was diagnosed with high functioning autism aged seven, Mm -hmm. with a caveat to use strategies for Asperger's syndrome, because despite my delayed language development, my language skills had already caught up by that time, which Mm -hmm. is why I sometimes use either high functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome. I'm aware that functioning labels are falling out of fashion, but but we're talking 25 years ago here. All right. So you had given a TED talk. Did you approach that? Did they approach you? And what was the experience like? So earlier this year, I gave a talk at TEDx Oxford, and they have an interesting system whereby instead of applying to speak to them, they have a team of people that go out and approach other speakers asking if they would like to speak at this TEDx event. So I obviously said yes and gave my talk entitled Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is, Autism (laughs) and Neurodiversity in the Workplace. All right. And what was your experience like? Did you get a great applause? Did you get questions asked? I certainly enjoyed the event. It was a very good, receptive audience. And I got an impressive round of applause afterwards, especially given that it was set in Oxford Town Hall, which if you've ever been in there, it's a very opulent place to speak. Probably one of the nicest venues I've ever spoken at and certainly my most high profile talk to date. All right. And I understand you were also featured in a lot of magazines and on TV. What was that like to see articles written about you? Have you talked about on TV? So, yeah, I've been featured in a number of magazines and articles and been in the media a fair bit. I mean, I think it's a well great way to promote my message of not just being autistic, but focusing on the positive side of being autistic, which I like to do, being an optimistic autistic person. But at the same time, we need to keep pushing the narrative about hearing from people that have lived experience. All too often, even today, we 
hear about conferences and events talking about autism without a sufficient number of autistic people either speaking or actively involved in it. I mean, if you look at any other minority group, it would be an outrage if they weren't sufficiently involved. And I certainly believe that autistic people are no exception to that. So I like to do what I can to get my message of autism out there to say, this is my lived experience. We, this is what we need people to hear. All right. Now, what advice would you give to somebody who's either coming out later in life with being diagnosed autism, with autism or those who have been diagnosed early who are struggling dealing with life? So especially for adults who have been newly diagnosed as autistic, I've heard many people say it can be quite a relief or refreshing because they've spent their entire lives not knowing why they are different, why they may be struggling with the world. And now that they've been diagnosed, they have a new identity, something that ex can explain a lot of the issues that they have been facing. So in a sense, it feels like quite a significant reset. But on the other hand, having said reset can mean, well, you have to reevaluate a lot of situations you have been in. Some people say they look at life in quite a different way, for usually for the better, but it does mean that upon receiving a new diagnosis, it can get pretty overwhelming. So my advice to people who have been newly diagnosed is to just take your time because having that new diagnosis can be kind of like a reset as to many things you know and how you see the world. So definitely take your time when it comes to understanding you as a diagnosed autistic person. I seem to get that a lot with a lot of my guests who've been diagnosed late. They say it's it's like a whole different change of life because they start viewing things differently. It's like, oh, this explains why I did X, Y, and Z when I was younger. And now they're appreciating everything differently than they were before. It's definitely great to hear about the increasing number of autistic people being diagnosed because, well, we have the tools to diagnose autistic people. There's an increasing amount of autism awareness and acceptance out in the world. So, of course, adults are going to see that they might be autistic and go for a diagnosis and some, some way down the line get diagnosed. I, I say some way down the line because there is still a far too long waiting list for being diagnosed as autistic in the UK. It's common to take a number of years from your initial GP referral to diagnosis. And there are over 140,000 people in the UK alone waiting for a diagnosis, which I think is a completely unacceptable figure. Um, that I, I've been told that before, that there is a huge waiting period in a lot of people's will instead go to a private organization instead of waiting because they want to get that diagnosis right there and then instead of waiting forever. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it should not have to be the case that people go privately, but obviously that is an avenue which is explored increasingly often in the UK. But one thing which I have increasingly seen is while people are on a waiting list, if they choose to be on there or not, is the increasing upcoming of self-diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
So somebody saying that they are autistic without the formal diagnosis to back it up, which is something I am all for. I'm completely behind that because there is still stigma to being autistic. It's not something a person would willingly say about themselves. So if someone comes out as self-diagnosed, I think that decision needs to be respected. Yes, so true. Now, in our talks, you said you were a musician. Would you say your your music, your love for music is one of your hyper focuses? That is certainly one way to put it. Yeah, I've definitely been quite heavily involved in music throughout my life because, well, I come from a musical family and I received piano lessons from the age of eight. And because, well, I like to have a strong sense of routine, which I've heard is common in many autistic people. Mm -hmm. My parents put into place that I had to do 20 minutes of practice every single day. Now, this is put on my schedule, which was often printed out on an A4 piece of paper stuck on the fridge at home. So I can refer to it whenever I want. Almost instead of keeping everything in my brain, it's just there on the fridge. I can refer to it whenever I want. But this man doing 20 minutes of practice every single day adds up cumulatively. The minutes turn into hours, which turn into hundreds of hours. And Arguably, that's how anyone becomes a proficient musician by putting in the hours. And I say it's no different for autistic people. And if anything, by saying that it's a hyper focus means I'm more likely to put in more hours, which would make me a better musician, right? Yeah. Now, I understand in your life, you've come across meeting Dr. Temple Grandin. I've only had the pleasure of talking to her via zoom but what was it like to meet her in person it was definitely an experience to meet her in person i'll say dr temple grandin is a very unique person i say that in a very complimentary way of course and it is certainly evident that she is a very principled person like very strongly sticking to her morals they're more binary than most people some people may question their morals more but for temple grandin this is how it is there are no two ways about it there's no point faffing around trying to question any morals or principles. That's what they are. You just stick with it and you get on with your life. These are the cards that you've been dealt in life. Just use them to your advantage. And she certainly has done in forging a career in the cattle farming industry. It's something like a third of all cattle manufacturing equipment used in the States was designed by her. And I think that's a phenomenal achievement. As I said, just using her skills and her abilities to just instead of talking about what she's good at, just showing diagrams, showing mm -hmm. her portfolio of work and saying, like, this is what I can do. Do you want me or not? Yeah. I mean, just talking to her alone, you just get this sense that how her mind operates and how she views things. I mean, she you can tell she's passionate about what she does. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that whatsoever. Now, I understand you've written books. What was that prompt to say, hmm, I should, I need to write a book to get it across to people that, hey, you're not alone? So I'll talk about my first book entitled It's Raining Cats and Dogs. Now, this came about because when I was at school, I struggled with understanding other people because people would use idioms and expressions and metaphors without thinking about their literal interpretation, which is something autistic people are known for, a very literal and analytical way of thinking. But this meant that the expressions people used on a day-to-day -day basis 
without considering their literal interpretation, meant that there was a communication barrier. So the strategy that my support assistant put in place to help me overcome it was to write down the expression in an exercise book, draw a picture of the first thing that came to my mind, and then she would write the true meaning underneath. Now, this was a revelation to me in the sense that like this expression means that, that expression means that, and mm -hmm. I could just absorb this information into my mind, kind of like a sponge, people say, but I see it as like almost assigning variables in like a computer programming language. This means that, that means that, and similar reasoning as to why I've always been very good at picking up and learning new languages. But this meant that I was able to explicitly learn and be taught what these idioms meant. And we found that the book, this resource which we created, was also helpful for everyone around me, my teachers and family and friends, to understand just how my brain works, to appreciate my very literal way of thinking, and to really come to the conclusion that if you're going to use expressions, just make sure you say what you mean in the first place. Don't use cloudy, fluffy language. Just say what you mean. How difficult can that be? <laughs> I mean, that is so true. I mean, I just got recently back from a um podcast conference and i was talking to this one guy one day we're sitting down and he's like i have a my girlfriend's got a son who's autistic and one day we said we're gonna play things by air and his son couldn't figure out what that meant and he had to literally sit down with him and explain what that meant was that we're they were gonna take things as they go we don't but it is go on explicit it is explicitly helping us to make that connection because you often can't work out expressions from their literal meaning so it needs to be explained with us that this expression actually means something completely different like one literal interpretation of playing things by ear it's like playing things by xylophone with beaters you're just <laughs> whacking someone's ear instead <laughs> would you say that part of that is due to the fact that we only think like in black and white, we don't see that middle line. It has definitely been an instinct of mine to see things in that very black and white or binary sense, like this means that or that means that. There's understanding the gray areas in the middle is something that I've well consistently had to work on mm -hmm. and that the world isn't as black and white as my autistic brain would like it to be. I mean, that's the case with me. I know as my mom has always said to me, that I think in black and white, I don't see in the middle. It's like when you bake or you cook, you don't have to literally foul things to the T. You can be off here or you can be off a little there. But it's also like you can't see just right or wrong. There's always, there's going to be a middle sometime. I guess with baking, it's in a sense, I'd almost thought, I'm not a proficient baker myself by any means, but you've got a recipe, you follow the recipe, you'll get that result. There's that certainty, that predictability about it. But with, I guess, more advanced baking, there is a, that margin of error as well. Like you can put something in the oven for 26 minutes instead of 25 and it will still be fine. You can have an extra five grams of flour and chances are it will still be fine. So I think there is, it's not just black and white. We need to learn about this margin of error in each individual situation. And given how complex the social world is, that could be hundreds, if not thousands of situations where we need to explicitly learn 
what that margin of error might be. Like when it comes to timing, for example, if I've got a nine o'clock meeting with my boss, I'm going to be there for nine o'clock. He's going to be annoyed if I get there at five past nine. But if you go to a house party, for example, and it says it starts at nine o'clock, you could be there at half past nine and it's absolutely fine. It's just learning those nuances in each social situation that I've either had to be explicitly taught or figure out myself over the years. All right. Now, what myths can we dispel about autism that people just don't understand aren't true? Well, where do you want to begin? There are quite a few (laughs) myths about autism. The one that I see crop up most is that autistic people lack empathy. Uh, I I had asked that question to Dr. Grandin. It's something which I find quite baffling because it's not as if autistic people don't have emotions we often just care about different things to that of most people so it's not as if to say that we lack empathy Uh, but one way this has been described is if the double empathy problem now i personally i've personally met dr damian milton a number of times who is autistic himself and coined the double empathy problem which basically suggests that well it's there's the communication barrier between autistic and neurotypical people and it's not just that autistic people struggle to understand neurotypical people it's not just that one-way thing it's a two-way system hence the double empathy problem neurotypical people think that we don't have empathy but on the other hand we think neurotypical people lack the same kind of empathy that we do and this is epitomized if you have social situations. If you have exclusively neurotypical people, everyone has a similar way of thinking, they get on fine. But also, if you have a group of exclusively autistic people, again, chances are we'll get on just fine because we have a similar way of thinking and we won't have the same communication barriers when you mix these two groups together, either autistic to neurotypical or vice versa. So it's just appreciating our different neurology the fact that our brains are wired differently and i don't think it's right to say that neurotypical people are right and autistic people are wrong it is more nuanced than that true i mean if you when people say that we lack empathy i usually tell them it's not that we lack empathy it's that we wear our emotions on our sleeves we our emotions are on the outside we care much more than people seem that's why we get emotional easier. We we break out in tears. I think that could also be a little bit of why we get meltdowns is every all those senses coming at us and our emotions are on the outside. It just breaks out into, it, it spills out. There's definitely the sense of, well, autism is a, well, defined by us having difficulty interacting with other or neurotypical people. And yeah, one thing that I certainly struggle with as well is I don't have a poker face. Yeah. Like you could tell if I'm trying to like pull a significant lie or bluff or anything like that, as I'm assuming is the case for most autistic people. And trying to suppress that is well masking, which everyone does to some kind of extent, but autistic people often feel the need to put on a thicker mask and mask for a significantly longer period of time without knowing 
what a healthy level of masking is or having the mechanisms to be able to say, well, this is enough, I need to get away from this situation because it's what we see in neurotypical people. Bearing in mind, this is a world designed by neurotypical people, by the majority, for the majority. And obviously trying to put yourself in that kind of uncomfortable situation, it, it takes time to stretch your comfort zone to that level. One thing that Dr. Temple Grandin also mentions is about stretching another person's comfort zone. You can't stay in your comfort zone 24-7-365.25, including leap years, because <laughs> if you just stay in your comfort zone, you're never going to make any progress in life. You need yeah. to gradually yeah. stretch and mold and bend your comfort zone. But what you can't do is just pull it apart because it will just snap. It's like plasticine or play-doh you've got to gradually mold it you've got to gradually and slowly mm. expose yourself to new experiences which can be uncomfortable and then with time you become more comfortable with them but it is a gradual process that's funny you talk about the comfort zone i am writing a book exactly about that okay yeah it's called outside the comfort zone and it basically follows me on my journey from being diagnosed to going through a clinical trial for a new medication to being medicine to being medicated to traveling to school, all with the basic message of you can't live your life in your comfort zone. Mm. The world is too short. You only have one life. To it is too short to just say what if. And that's the message. Life is too short. You don't do big things, but do smaller things because regardless of the experience outcome, it's still the experience is what you're getting. Yeah, it is when expanding your comfort zone. It is lots of small steps rather than one mm -hmm. giant leap. <laughs> Anyways. Why do you think that the employment numbers are so high for those of us who are on the spectrum? I think that employment figures need to go up considerably for autistic people be, and they're so low because people simply don't, well, firstly, because people don't understand what it's like to be autistic. And secondly, because social skills are such a fundamental part of the world, which is something that autistic people need to be explicitly taught it's not something we can we take for granted we struggle to pick it up by ourselves certainly as a child i'm grateful for the lesson that i've had role-playing social situations having social stories just having explicit lessons on how the complex social world works now in the uk the latest employment figures from the ons the office of national statistics so the government's body that comes up with statistics has just said that 29.9% of the autistic adult population is in employment, which is the second lowest figure for any specific condition, which to me says there is a lot more that needs to be done in understanding autistic people and accepting us not only for who we are, but once we've got that base level of support and understanding in place, then we are able to use our hyper-focuses or special interests or whatever you want to call them to not just get out of the standard of neurotypical people, but often exceed them. I talk about this a lot in my latest book entitled, What Has Autism Ever Done For Us? 
So I use about 18 famous people as case studies, not necessarily diagnosed as autistic, but I look at their lives from an autistic point of view, my own, and I have a section highlighting their autistic traits, essentially really making it clear to say, what do these famous people who have gone on to achieve fantastic things have in common with autistic people? Mm -hmm. As I said, I mentioned Dr. Temple Grandin as one person in my book. I also mentioned Greta Thunberg, the climate activist who has Asperger's syndrome and has certainly done more than her fair share to push the climate agenda onto the world, saying that we actually need to do something to stop the world from burning. And I talk about a wide range of people, past and present, just looking at what they have in common with autistic people and saying that without these autistic traits, we would be in a very different place today. That's so true. Anyways, what was it like to be asked to talk at the autism show several times? I mean, one time is one thing, but to be asked back a couple more times, that's got to be something exciting for you. So the way I got into speaking in the first place was at my local autistic trusts AGM and annual general meeting and um, speaking about my experiences of being autistic I was 18 years old at the time and that happened to go down very well people thoroughly enjoyed what I was saying maybe even been the first time some of them heard an autistic young person speak and that was so successful that kind of kick-started my side gig giving talks on being autistic. And then the autism show was the first big event that I spoke at. They actually have a hub or stage with exclusively autistic speakers on. Now, I don't know any other event of that scale that has a section with exclusively four autistic speakers. And I think it's fantastic. When I first went back in 2010, I think it I've been there every year since, but yeah, certainly being at the autism show shows that there is a huge appetite for knowledge when it comes to understanding autism. And the show has really showcased that autistic people play a significant and key part in that. And throughout the years that I've been able to go back each year, slightly tweak my talk, update it to speak about my experiences, firstly, when I was at school, then at university, and now I also mention about employment. I work full-time as a data analyst for a car insurance company. And just using my skills, such as my attention to detail and logical and analytical way of thinking, as well as my abilities to use Excel and to code, it's just really just talking about my life. But as I said, focusing on the positive aspects, looking at what I am able to do because I'm autistic, because there is still so much out there that puts autistic people down saying being autistic means you can't do this being autistic means you can't do that whereas I say hang on a minute that's not how I see the world as Michael Barton an autistic person this is my experiences these are things I am able to do because of being autistic so I'm definitely passionate about flipping the narrative from exclusively talking about autism in a negative side of things and saying that well once we do have support and we are able to flourish Look at what we can do. True, so true. Now you have two successful books out. What is it? What is it like to have two books that are so successfully being sold? I mean, it was fantastic to have two successful 
books out. I just spoke about my third book entitled What Has Autism Ever Done For Us? But being a published author has definitely really been invaluable to help get my get the knowledge out there because as I said, my first book was talking about literal thinking. My second book entitled A Different Kettle of Fish was talking about a day trip into London, going from my comfort zone at university into the hustle and bustle of central London, which has been out for nine years now. Back then, there weren't that many first-hand accounts, short stories of what it is like to be autistic from an autistic point of view. Mm -hmm. And most recently, what has autism ever done for us? I mean, that's just really making the case for that, that autistic people have been around since the dawn of humanity. We've only had the tools over the past century or so to actually diagnose autistic people. And yet people with the similar way of thinking to us have been around for as, for as long as humans have been around. And I'm just making the case that we need, not only do we need people that think differently, but our divergent way of thinking has existed for much longer than most people realize. No, no. Why do you think it's hard for those of us who are on the spectrum to find love? That's quite a complex question. I'll do my best to answer it. One reason why autistic people can struggle to find love could be, as I said, down to our below average social skills. There are many dating programs out there, and each of them seems to require people with good social skills to be able to meet somebody else, talk to them, go on a date with them, etc., etc., until you do find love. But having an inherently poor set of social skills, which I have to explicitly keep working on, means that it does take longer, not only to have the social skills to be able to date, but it's also a question of just meeting other people until you find someone that there's that mutual love for. I mean, when it comes to dating, there does seem to be quite a lot of trial and error in the sense that you're very unlikely to fall in love with the first person you go on a date on. It takes, it can take a number of dates, meeting a number of different people before you find someone where there is that mutual love. And as I said, with autistic people with our below average social skills, it's harder for us to find dates in the first place. And it does take longer all right now let's talk about your second book what autism has done for us what had prompted you to write it and what kind of recognition did you get from it so what prompted me to write my most recent book what has autism ever done for us it's been a project for a number of years because it's one thing to talk about autistic people what it's like to be autistic but we also need to think about how many undiagnosed autistic people there are in the world. Figures vary between two and three or even four percent of the population being autistic, which means that there are millions, hundreds of millions even, of autistic people in the world. And I think that the rate at which autistic people are being diagnosed, it's still far too slow. And one thing I've always been passionate about thinking about is just cognitive diversity, not just epitomized by being diagnosed as autistic, but there are many other undiagnosed autistic people in the world, which could arguably outnumber the people that are diagnosed. So one thing I wanted to achieve with what has autism ever done for us is just looking at 
people who may or may not be diagnosed and asking, well, what do they have in common with autistic people? And I think if everyone had the book, they may be able to see autistic traits in another person, maybe a relative or mm-hmm. friend, which could be the start to them getting diagnosed, which, as we talked about earlier, can be a significant relief for adults mm-hmm. being diagnosed, explaining why they've been different for their entire life. So just saying that it's not strictly about diagnosed autistic people as well. We need to consider this pool of people who may or may not be autistic who are just undiagnosed because it's said, I don't want to focus on this tiny little pocket of diagnosed people when there could be so many more undiagnosed out there who in the future could well be diagnosed. Right. What would you say your biggest struggles are? Uh, One of my something that I've always struggled with, I guess, is small talk, to put it that way. It was only a couple of years ago I actually found the purpose of small talk. I thought it was just neurotypical people nattering away, talking (laughs) for the sake of it. But it was only recently I actually learned the purpose of small talk. It's still something that I'm not very good at, but the reason why people make small talk is... It's not a, It's not about the actual words you're saying or the topic. I mean, who really cares about the weather? Let's be honest. <laughs> it's more about gauging if the other person is happy to have more in-depth conversation with you. So kind of metaphorically doing a tester, dipping your toe in the water to see if the other person is interested in more, in more in-depth conversation or if they're not, then you've only had a bit of small talk and then that's it. You find someone else to talk to. All right. And finally, where can people find out more about you and your books? Well, you can contact me via my website, www.michaelbarton.org.uk. I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Twitter, or X as it's called, at michaelbarton22. I'm also on threads and Instagram with the handle vmichaelbarton. And yeah, if you want to contact me, I'm more than happy for you to reach out to me, ask any questions, or buy my books, or book me to talk. And that's the ladies and gentlemen. That was Michael Barton, and I'll see you in the next one. See you there, and make sure to like and share this episode, everyone. See you then. See you then. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Shape shifting, same player, different position. The definition could stick with them. Drifting through these layers of wisdom. I took a break from tradition. I move away from what's expected. Change the music ride the way but keep the message question this dimension is still deception every entrance have good intentions no exceptions and leave the rest up to the heavens your only plan to be the seeker and become yourself because more than half would you believe in was crafted to be misleading for the benefit of someone else i want to believe in the truth but only see what i'm shown got the freedom to choose but can't decide on my own follow what the group is thinking bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that i don't fit in I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow up the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping up the box that I don't, I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in. Hey, hey, I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in. Hey, hey, I don't fit in. I don't clap the score applause, I don't walk right into traps. While you closing in the walls, I'll be using out the cracks. Sit and relax, don't breathe. These are the facts, so close at least. 
stutters, living in ass suckers. Keep moving along to the beat, brainwash, rinse and repeat. Keep pulling about with the sheep. I'll go, got with Eve, know what I mean? Probably not. Honesty shocks the spineless. The only box I'll ever fit in is the one that I die. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in. Hey, hey.